Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm Charles Hecker. And I'm Claudine Fry. And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world. Claudine, before we get to the weighty task of explaining how the world works, and we're going to try to do that, I guess, in 30 minutes or less, we have some news. And as you may have noticed, I have a co-host, my colleague, Claudine Fry. Claudine and I work together in our London office and actually quite regularly usually sit next to each other. We're sort of sitting next to each other in London neighborhoods. The great thing about Claudine joining the podcast is that Claudine and I actually work together quite a lot. So it's fantastic to be cooperating on something new. Claudine, welcome. Oh, thank you, Chuck. It is so exciting to be joining the podcast as a co-host with you. Really one of those moments where I have to pinch myself that um, I get paid (laughs) to do this. No, it's great. Let's see if you feel that way after we're done with a few of these podcasts. (laughs) Um, Claudine, quick weather check. It snowed in my part of London yesterday and it was bitter cold this morning. What's going on out your window? Well, it's actually quite bright, but yes, it has been a bizarre week in London this week, hasn't it? Absolutely freezing, but at least we've had the sunshine. We have, in fact, in London at times, I think, been colder than the weather in Moscow. So, Claudine, as we look east towards Moscow, tell us a little bit about what's on the agenda today. Chuck, today we are going to be turning our attention to Russia and the widespread demonstrations that we've seen there in response to opposition leader Alexei Navalny returning to Moscow after receiving medical treatment for his alleged poisoning in Germany. We're also going to probably talk a little bit about how the situation has intensified recently because Mr. Navalny is now on a hunger strike and a recent visit to his detention center by activists and doctors and journalists resulted in a series of police detentions. Prior to those activities, we saw some of the largest demonstrations that we've seen in Putin's Russia, period. Is that not the case, Claudine? That's right, Chuck. And there are significant elections coming up in September, just a few months away. So this sort of domestic visibility of Navalny and the issues that he's raising will test Putin's government over the coming year. I imagine that is exactly the case. Let's spend a few minutes shedding a little bit of light on this issue. First on the line, dialing in from Moscow is Bota Ilias. Bota is a researcher in our political risk consultancy. Bota, welcome back to the podcast. Good morning. Great to be on the podcast. Imero Casey is also dialing in from an adjacent neighborhood. You may get the impression that we're all trying to sit next to each other as if we were in the office. It's almost as good, but not quite. Imer is a senior analyst based in our London office. Imer, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Chuck. Hello, everybody. Glad to be here. Walter, we just published a piece that you wrote explaining a bit about the significance of the demonstrations. One of the points you make is that they're not just about Navalny's detainment and alleged poisoning. Talk us through what you see as behind what's going on at the moment. The unusually large and widespread nature of the several demonstrations that took place in January and February across more than 180 cities and towns in Russia suggests that although Navalny's detainment shortly after his return to Moscow has served as a catalyst for these rallies, the the story is actually bigger than that. The rallies reflected broader public frustration with longstanding economic stagnation and corruption, among other things which cannot be vented publicly as restrictions on civil and political rights have continued to grow 
And Putin has reset his presidential term limits and is officially eligible to stand in the 2024 presidential election. So here we have a prominent opposition activist, Navalny, who heads an independent nonprofit organization with 39 regional branches, not only leading investigations into high-level corruption in the country, but also helping local candidates not backed by the incumbent government win local elections. Navalny has attributed his poisoning attack to the Russian government to silence his work, but the government has, of course, denied any state-level involvement in the poisoning. So yes, although Navalny's arrest in January did trigger these demonstrations, after all, his team called for the protests. He and his team was able not only to draw from these public grievances, but also to highlight them when his aides released a YouTube video in January linking Putin to an expensive Black Sea estate. I should also note that Navalny's video investigations into um, the alleged lavish assets of high-profile politicians over the past several years, such as um, that of the former Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev, have tended to spark large demonstrations, even more so this year, when economic troubles are the population's main concern as a result of the pandemic. So, Bota, just going back to something that you mentioned earlier in your remarks, in addition to the sort of opposition political sentiment that Navalny is marshalling. He's also providing, I guess, the platform or the occasion for people who are frustrated with living standards and corruption and, and, and all the restrictions to civic and political life. And I suppose we should probably also talk about the pandemic response coming out of the Kremlin. You know, Putin can pass laws saying that he can run for re-election as long as he likes. But what's happening to his approval ratings in circumstances like this? Here's the thing. Putin's approval ratings have actually not suffered that much over the past year based on credible polls. His ratings did drop to um, 59% last spring, which was the lowest mark in more than 10 years. But that's also the time when there was a strict national lockdown and most non-essential businesses were shut down due to the pandemic. The authorities afterwards did learn the lesson and have since been very reluctant to reimpose strict restrictions domestically. So Putin's current ratings are not at their lowest level. Recently, up to 63% of Russians in credible polls said they approved his work. But at the same time, the so-called Crimea effect when Putin enjoyed ratings in the high 80s after Russia annexed Crimea in 2014 has certainly worn off. Based on existing data, I think that the future of Putin's ratings will be tied more, more closely to economic indicators and living standards rather than his foreign policy. And the reason is that surveys indicate that many Russians do not feel confident about their future, their incomes, and many think that Putin has not done a particularly good job on the economy. At the same time, I don't see the ra his ratings returning to sky-high levels in the immediate future because the population is, in fact, increasingly getting fatigued with the lack of change in his office. He has refreshed his cabinet, prime minister, regional governors over the past couple of years, but these changes may not be enough. Indeed, the share of the population that doesn't want to see him run in, in the 2024 presidential election is growing and was most recently at 41%. But at the same time, it should be noted that the government has made it clear that it will not allow large unsanctioned anti-government protests to form. And in fact, Navalny's team has had to put a stop to the protests earlier this year because of the government's particularly forceful treatment of protesters. The rallies will likely renew in June. 
we shall see what will happen to Putin's ratings then. But I suspect that they will remain at this level of the 60s for the time being. Does that frustration with Putin, those frustrations about cost of living and the economic performance of the government, do they actually translate into support specifically for Navalny? I think this is very much the, the point to, to back up what Botta was just saying. Navalny's support ratings have actually remained pretty much the same uh, since his return to Russia between 19 and 20 percent. And some polling released by the Levada Center, one of the uh, couple of reliable pollsters yesterday, I think really makes the point about how difficult it is for him to get cut through with the majority of the population to be perceived as you know, a credible alternative because of the state's command over most media resources that the majority of the population consume. So in that polling, 50% of people said that they thought that Navalny's imprisonment was just. 30% said they thought it was unjust. And among that 30% who thought it was unjust, only 60% said they wanted him freed, while 28% said you know, it was all the same to them, whether he was freed or not. So you know, despite the, the, the huge catalyst which his arrest has been for you know, the kind of consolidation of that rising public discontent, which Botter talked about, he is, is not cutting through as a serious contender, as an alternative to Putin. And I think we have to remember the kind of political context that we're dealing with. This is not a, a situation where people are used to or acclimatized or comfortable with political competition in, in the way that we, we conceive it in, in Europe and North America. You know, Navalny's task is, is to convince the population that, you know, to choose him, to take a bet on him, despite all their grievances, he is effectively an unknown. And of course, his ability to do that, his ability to, to make that case is severely hampered by, you know, the, the state's control over media. Of course, among younger people, in particular in cities who, who rely on more independent online media sources, they are able to sort of hear his message from the horse's mouth, as it were. But the majority of Russians, older people and those outside the cities are, are hearing the little that they do about Navalny through, through state media. And that continues to depict him effectively as a foreign funded agent who does not look after the interests of the country. So his position still remains, I think, actually quite weak if you look at the bigger picture beyond what's happening in, in cities and among more urban populations. And Chuck mentioned that, of course, we're talking as news headlines report that Navalny is apparently on, on a hunger strike at the penal colony where he's being held outside Moscow. So presumably, from what you're saying, Imar, it doesn't sound as if that hunger strike will actually change how he's perceived among Russians. I think it will reinforce the anger of those who are sort of actively against the government and, and actively supportive of him. But there's a, a limited number of people who can be swayed either way because of the big dichotomy in the types of media resources that people consume and the broader perception of, of the state and the value or the threat of opposition and political competition among Russians. You know, Alexei Navalny is genuinely and fairly broadly viewed as an absolute master at the use of social media in politics. And, and I've seen some of his videos on YouTube and they are produced to an incredibly high standard. And he was pumping out video even while he was convalescing in Berlin. And you know, presumably he's got a team on all of this, but it's, it's hugely impressive. And one of them, of course, was an investigation on YouTube tying the president to this gigantic estate on the coast of the Black Sea that was absolutely staggering in its luxury and, and kind of outlandishness. How effective are these sort of, you know, these gotcha videos, this sort of guerrilla media strategies that, that people call them? 
first of all, how effective are these going to be in Russia? And secondly, much more broadly, and maybe even more importantly, what's this going to do to the use of the internet period in Russia? Yeah, I think we can all agree that the internet and social media in particular have played a major role in many close political environments. And although Russia, unlike China, has not banned um, popular social media websites and messaging apps, both traditional and online media are, are tightly controlled, either directly or indirectly, in Russia. And as Imar mentioned earlier, because most traditional media are controlled by the state, Navalny and other opposition players in the country are in practice limited to these untraditional media channels. Even though many Russians still rely on state-controlled media for news, the share of the population using more objective internet sources is slowly growing. But a major issue, as Imar has mentioned earlier, is that for Navalny's team is that state media have been discrediting his work for many years and have made it very difficult for him to grow genuinely popular among the population. So the YouTube video you mentioned has been wildly popular and became Navalny's most most watched video ever. I mean, you have to you have to admit it's an incredible piece of work. It's it's a very well done video. And when I checked this morning, the video had gathered more than six and a half million views since it was first posted in mid in mid January. And something tells me that it's this is going to be an incredibly popular video, not just by Navalny standards, but for a lot of YouTubers in general. But here's a separate and important question. How influential has the social media content been at changing people's minds? And the answer is that the impact has been rather limited so far. Only 17% of people who have seen the video said that their attitude towards Putin worsened, but the majority of Russians said that the video did not change their opinion of Putin at all. And only 17% of people said that they believed that Putin did indeed own the palace, with the majority of people thinking that it was all fabricated. The impact has been limited so far, but, but even this limited impact of social media, of this content, has prompted the government to take steps to demand greater control over what kind of content is going to be allowed in Russia, especially ahead of those crucial legislative elections that Claudine mentioned, which are going to take place in, in September. The authorities have essentially threatened to block foreign internet platforms which fail to comply with content regulations in addition to using physical force to prevent and, and break up peaceful demonstrations. We've already seen, actually, in the last couple of days, a number of big international and some Western tech companies fined as part of this campaign. So I think yesterday TikTok was fined more than $30,000 in a court for what the authorities said was failing to delete calls to attend protests in support of Navalny. And Twitter was fined earlier in April on the same charge. So, you know, when we talk about the impact of, of this political situation in Russia on business, that's, I think, the most visible one. And it's only likely to intensify as the election gets closer. The authorities have a huge wealth of legislative resources at their hands to control online content and to effectively, you know, interfere with the content that big companies can can publish. And currently, you know, there is a clear political imperative from their point of view to implement fines and, and other penalties to ensure or attempt to ensure that they can control and disrupt the opposition's ability to organize. It's interesting. The idea here is really not necessarily to shut down all of these different platforms because the optics of that aren't that great and invite comparison with a lot of other governments around the world that have shut down wildly popular internet platforms. Russia's content, I guess, then to you know leave the tap open, but try to control what comes out of it. I think we're seeing that the government's willingness to put up with very bad optics is really increasing. So in March, the government announced that it was slowing down the speed of Twitter. 
Twitter is not very widely used in Russia, so you know the kind of impact on users is relatively limited compared to other platforms. But this was quite a significant move. They've now said that they are rolling back from that because Twitter has been complying with demands to pay fines for publishing what the government terms improper content related to child pornography and, and extremism online. But I would suggest that although the, sort of the broad commitment of the authority to continue attracting from direct investment and, and ensure that Russia is an attractive place for business, that that remains and that pertains even to countries, you know, it, it wants investment even from countries with which it has strained political relations. But I think it increasingly sees the potential threat from technology to its political agenda and its domestic political stability to be sufficient to merit potentially putting off further investment and pushing away technology companies. Its ability to do it in practice is a whole other story. And we know that it has struggled to implement that slowdown on Twitter that I mentioned, for example. But I think the concern about the optics looks like it's lessening. So what does that mean for foreign companies that are operating in Russia then, and particularly Western ones, given that there is such a focus on trying to undermine Navalny by claiming that he is funded by Western countries and so on. Obviously, relations with Russia and many countries in the West are in poor shape. As this political situation evolves, particularly in the build-up to the elections later this year, what can companies and investors expect in terms of the, the way that the authorities might perceive them? Are there any changes to the way that they're going to be treated? One thing we can expect more of, and something that I discussed in the article, is that we can expect the government's anti-Western and nationalist rhetoric to intensify. And it's been happening already. State media have not only discredited Navalny's oppositionist work and alleged poisoning as foreign-funded spy operations, but also claimed that, without using any credible evidence, that the US, UK, and German intelligence agencies funded and fabricated the YouTube palace investigation. But then again, Anti-Western rhetoric is nothing new, and Putin's nationalist arguments during the annexation of Crimea in 2014 is what drove the surge in his approval ratings in 2014 and subsequent years. Putin has long projected himself as a defender of conservative Russian values against, quote-unquote, the pernicious impact of Western values and norms. The anti-Western rhetoric is something that companies can expect. It will stay in place. And it is something that is going to further strain Russia's relations with the United States, especially given the Biden administration's greater emphasis on human rights and civil rights in Russia. Russia has shown very little tolerance for such criticism of its domestic politics and its domestic business. And we can expect tensions to escalate periodically. This is also clear from the fact that recent polls show that more than half of Russians have a negative attitude towards the U.S. and that they expect U.S.-Russia relations to worsen under the Biden administration. Companies in non-politicized sectors do not have to worry about any potential implications of this anti-Western rhetoric because, as Imar mentioned earlier, the government is still interested in raising foreign direct investment and it wants to help the economy recover in the aftermath of the pandemic. But at the same time, we do expect that the anti-Western rhetoric is going to impact the more politicized sectors, including the media and foreign technology companies. In the long run, I think the government's survival will be intertwined with anti-Western rhetoric because those who support it have come to think that the West is hostile to Russia. The government will continue deploying this rhetoric to boost its popularity and as it prepares for key legislative elections in September in order to boost its chances of winning these elections. Let's blow this up a little bit outside of just Russia. And in the work that we do with companies in the region and globally, how can we make the Russia example meaningful? And what kind of lessons can we extract from this 
because the Navalny situation is entirely unique to Russia, but it happens in a lot of other places in different guises as well. This is a great question. And I think that one obvious lesson here is that companies operating in less transparent jurisdictions should examine reputational aspects of their footprint in such countries. Those companies whose services play an active part in organizing rallies and or, or reporting first-hand information from them should be especially careful, not only because of content and data demands made by local authorities and the regulatory burden that comes with it, but also because of what their users will think of them if they do cooperate with the authorities. So companies will need to decide, and, and they have been deciding, on their approach to balancing their need to legally operate within such markets with their interest in keeping users happy. You know, despite the anti-Western rhetoric that Botta discussed, and despite the, the pressure on those politicized sectors, many companies from the West continue to do business in Russia. And although, you know, there are a plethora of challenges to that, which we regularly help clients overcome, I think Russia is an example of a, a country where the government quite clearly distinguishes between its political relationship with, say, the US and its attitude towards investment in sectors that don't have a direct or a clear impact on its ability to manage its domestic political situation. So I think the point is simply that, you know, an assumption shouldn't be made that because there is a deterioration in relations at a political or diplomatic level, that that will automatically create a hostile, openly negative environment for investment. On the contrary, actually, in many cases, I think we've seen Russia has been even more keen to attract FDI because of the pressure on the economy from sanctions and, and other diplomatic measures that have been put in place. A very big thank you to Bota Ilyas for joining us on the podcast and also for your content on the website. Do read Bota's piece on controlrisks.com. That's going to keep you up to date and up to speed with the most critical issues around the political opposition that Navalny poses, especially in the run-up to legislative elections. Bota, thanks very much for joining from Moscow. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Imiro Casey, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay updated with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. And check out RiskMap 2021, which launched in January. RiskMap is our annual flagship forecast of political security and operational risk for the coming year including our top five risks, key topics picked by our analysts, and a calendar of geopolitical events throughout the year. All of the Risk Map content is on our website. You can also follow all of our analysis and find out how Control Risks is helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.